Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast. Richard Lane here on Friday, March the 19th. Just before we have a close look at a research article concerning cystic fibrosis, here are some highlights from the issue of the Lancet, which is dated March the 20th to the 26th. Look out for our lead editorial, which takes a close look at the UK Department of International Development. In research, we present data from the International Carotid Stenting Study, previously published online, also online first, research about high cholesterol, and about HIV prevention and treatment for injecting drug users. And this week's seminar is about colorectal cancer. But this week, we're going to focus on a research article concerning cystic fibrosis. This is very much an epidemiological study looking specifically at the importance of data registries for CF within the European geographical region. Earlier, I spoke to the senior author of the paper, Dr. Anil Mehta, from the University of Dundee in Scotland here in the United Kingdom, although he did emphasise that much of the work was undertaken by Dr. Jonathan McCormick, also at Dundee. Dr. Mehta, many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet. Just before we go into the details of your European epidemiological study into cystic fibrosis, tell us a bit about the history of CF, how much we know about it, its genetic origins, etc. Well, thank you very much, Richard. Until about uh, 200 years ago, around three quarters of European children died before they reached six years of age. So that led to the question as to whether the surviving quarter were surviving as a result of luck, or was it something to do with their genes? And the analysis really indicated that perhaps you can be lucky once, lucky twice, but to be repeatedly lucky and survive is stretching a point when you have to survive successive waves of typhoid, dysentery, smallpox, plague, malaria, the diseases that were so common until relatively recently. So the idea arose that certain uh, combinations of genes provide protection and you can still get sick but you don't die and it's one of these genes that causes cystic fibrosis. Now of course it only causes cystic fibrosis should you by chance inherit two copies of a mutant form of one gene. Now, normally, most people have one mutant copy and one normal copy if they are carriers of the disease. And the idea has arisen that that somehow protects you against a range of diseases, such as smallpox and other diseases. Well, at least that's how the theory goes. And we've published our own links between protection against smallpox and this cystic fibrosis mutation uh, earlier on. Now, really to put that into a context, you really have to go back a very long time, around 40,000 years ago, bearing in mind that modern humans are about 200,000 years old. And the genetic clock data suggests that the very first baby that was born with this cystic fibrosis mutation had lost three sequential pieces of DNA in their egg or their sperm. And this was not in any random piece of DNA. This was in a critical part of a single gene on the seventh human chromosome. And about 20 years ago, the gene was identified and called CFTR. Now, I like to think of this very first baby as having a name, and I've given the name to this baby as fibrogenicum, because the lost three base pairs of DNA on that seventh chromosome had a very significant consequence. And I think the way to understand it is very straightforward. 
if that loss of those three pieces of DNA was of no relevance whatsoever, then you would find that this particular mutation would be very rare. But in genetic terms, it's incredibly common. And in fact, every 30th or every 50th person in Europe, depending on where you live, is completely oblivious to the fact that they carry these three missing base pairs of DNA on one of their two chromosome 7s. The net result of all this is that if you happen to have a partner who also has a missing chromosome 7, three base pairs, then every fourth child that you have will get two defective copies, and then that baby will have cystic fibrosis. And unfortunately, if they get this very severe form with the missing three pieces of DNA, then that baby is likely to die before they're at the age of five. And the corollary is also true that, of course, three out of four of their children, and people used to have a lot of children until recently, three out of their four of their children will be absolutely fine. Thanks for that. And, and just before we move into discussing your current study, just remind us about what we know about trends in life expectancy now for people who have cystic fibrosis, because a life expectancy is rising, isn't it? Oh, dramatically so. Uh, historically, what's happened is the work of John Dodge in the United Kingdom showed that survival from if you were born in the 60s with cystic fibrosis uh, was terrible. Almost all those individuals died when the, after diagnosis as babies. But if you were born in the 80s, then the chance of surviving till your mid-30s was about 50%. And now, in the, as we get into the year 2000 and beyond, it's really very difficult to calculate survival because less than 5% of the babies diagnosed with cystic fibrosis in the west of Europe are likely to die in the first 15 years of their life. So it's a, it's a projection. It's hard to say exactly how long those babies will live. And just comment... I think we all know, but phenotypically what the situation is when you have cystic fibrosis, obviously this is a uh, massive dysfunction uh, of the lung and respiratory system, isn't it? Yes, and essentially the babies, uh, the first thing the parents notice is the babies don't gain weight and then they change the milk and do various other things. And then the second thing is they present to the hospital with colds and coughs that don't seem to get better. And then they get diarrhea as they get older. And the three, the combination of those three symptoms leads pediatricians to do tests to find out if they have cystic fibrosis. But of course now it's all changed in the UK and in France, for example, as babies are screened at birth and you know before they develop the symptoms that they're going to get cystic fibrosis. Thank you for that introduction. And moving into the current study, this is a large epidemiological study in the European geographic area. I guess the main issue here is that you're investigating is what is going on in terms of data registration sort of within and between countries within, within the European geographical area, is that right? That is correct. And our, the main aim of our study was actually deceptively very simple. Um, we're very familiar with being at school and having our name called out on a register. Well, that's exactly what we did, uh, starting from Iceland and going right the way across to the Black Sea and across to Moscow and down to Israel. We took a register of all the patients with cystic fibrosis. And any school teacher listening to this will tell you that it's important to get your register correct as you are held accountable in loco parentis in their case. So we took a great deal of care to make sure that our register was legal, that it was decent, honest, and truthful, as the advertising uh, folks say, 
And uh, we really went to a lot of trouble to apply a decade of experience uh, in the UK where we set up the United Kingdom Cystic Fibrosis Register on behalf of the Cystic Fibrosis Trust. And that experience was vital to the task. And moving a bit more into the methodology, how did you coordinate this across so many countries and European member states involving what kind of organizations to, to help you pull this together? Well, the most interesting thing about this was that as soon as word got out that we were going to do this, we, we started off with 22 countries and, and it went rapidly to 35. And significant numbers outside the European Union came to us and said, we need you to uh, look at what's going on and include us in your in your work. And of course, we were fortunate that um, we had the European Union providing the resources coordinated through Bristol by my colleague David Shepard at the University of Bristol. We engaged Russian speakers because that was the common language of the East. And in Prague, Milan Macek Jr. led that initiative with all his Russian contacts, Russian speaking contacts throughout the former Soviet Union and the new emerging countries there. Then we took legal opinion from Belgium and the European Union. And the two final elements were due to the National Health Service, the first one, Margaret Fraser, who'd worked in the National Health Service collecting accurate data for 40 years, and was part of our team for the last 10 or 15 years. And the last piece came in with uh, someone who had a background in ordnance survey, geography, digital mapping, which we all take for granted with SatNav today, who actually did the baseline work for all this and was able also with her background in the east of Europe and with Gazprom and, and, the, um, and also uh, parts of the Soviet Union to use that contact list and linking up with the European Cystic Fibrosis Society. We had a multidisciplinary team that was dedicated to the task for three years with 35 countries at the end, as I said. And moving into results, because of the way this study was set up, you were therefore in a good position to fairly accurately compare registries between countries who, and we should stress, up to 2003 were members of the European Union with those that were not. We, we must make that point because a number of countries have since joined the EU, haven't they? That is correct. I mean, the, the study was funded uh, around 2003, 2004, and so we used the situation most reflective of the, the majority of the patient's lives, in other words, the 10 or 15 years before that period, uh, as being when they would have received their care. And it seemed reasonable then to look at the situation in 2003 uh, before Europe expanded within the European Union and compare uh, members and non-members. And it, it sounds all uh, as if it was... Um, designed that way, well, it wasn't, and that was uh, one of these accidents of history that I was invited to a meeting in the Balkans, and I was struck by, first of all, the willingness of uh, people who were at war not many years before to be working together for the care of these children and the dedication of these individuals, but when I looked at the resources available to them, I was absolutely horrified and struck it struck a chord with the situation I found 20 years ago as a young doctor looking after patients with cystic fibrosis and just did not have the resource to look after them properly. And it was such a vivid memory 
that we were approached by these pediatricians, can you help us, can you join in this register and, and find out what's going on? And I suppose the question that really hit me was, where have all the children gone? And the methodology emerged because of spending 20 years in cystic fibrosis, and I think there were four key factors. First of all, the basic genetic defect, as I said, arose 20,000 years ago and was basically, from a genetic point of view, the same. The disease was lethal if it was untreated, with 99% dying of diarrhea, as I mentioned before they were five years of age. And we knew from our work in the United Kingdom that 96% of this uh, terrible form of cystic fibrosis would turn up to a doctor before they were aged five with all sorts of trouble, as I mentioned before. And when we added that piece of information to the fact that the size of the general population in the east of Europe was very large, and we knew from work going on in Prague for the last 20 years that the frequency of the cystic fibrosis mutation was just as common in the east as it was in the west. When we added all this together, the hypothesis would have been that you should expect about a 50-50 distribution of populations of cystic fibrosis patients between the east and the west. And when we saw that there were only about a quarter of CF cases present in the east, then it struck us that there was something very significantly wrong. And we came back to the question, where have all the children gone? And so if we exclude everything else and use the kind of Sherlock Holmes principle, we've excluded every other possibility, then the one that remains, however unpalatable, might just be the truth, namely that the priorities for simple, affordable health care in some parts of Europe clearly do not lie in the treatment of this particular disease. And I note with great interest that Sir Liam Donaldson's report is just out on rare diseases, and he comments on a UK perspective that there are many other diseases that are just relatively neglected, even in the UK, and certainly true across Europe, because people just do not focus. There isn't the critical mass. It's not like asthma, where every doctor sees this condition. These conditions are pretty rare. Just to elaborate on that a bit further, so that is interesting. So basically what you're saying is, in a general sense, is the shift, if you like, between East and West is there were fewer cases recorded in the registries because you're basically assuming that the health system in those non-EU member countries at that time, and this is around 2003, were not sufficiently developed to treat or support cystic fibrosis uh, programs. Yes, you have to look at it in the context of the tremendous amount of public pressure put on in, in the Western Europe by the Cystic Fibrosis Parents Groups and the Cystic Fibrosis Society, Cystic Fibrosis UK. So the Cystic Fibrosis Trust raises the profile of the condition. And of course, where you don't have advocates, there the healthcare systems only treat that which they see. So which countries are the most developed then? You've mentioned the UK, you've mentioned France, and conversely, give examples of countries that you found in your study that, that, that were not geared up to dealing with the issues. Well, if you look at France, Germany, UK, Belgium, the Netherlands, broadly speaking, there are functioning clinics where the centres of expertise have been established. But if you uh, look across 
towards Estonia, Russia, Belarus, those kind of countries heading down towards the Black Sea, there the clinics are just being established now, but the they don't have the staff, they don't have the dietitians, they don't have the medicines, they don't have access to things that we in the West consider just normal. But they, neither do they have the the parent power to be able to push these diseases up the agenda. And what would those priority resources be? You mentioned drugs and diet. Can be more specific. What sort of things ideally would a well-resourced cystic fibrosis sort of prevention and treatment system have? It's it's the old idea. Do you prevent it or do you manage the disease once it has already occurred? Because the damage once it occurs to the lung is irreversible. So if I could take your question in two parts. So prevention. Prevention really is determined by screening. And that is very difficult in many countries because of the resources needed to take the, the test to every newborn baby. So if we just set that aside for a minute, what do you do when the baby does turn up? And again, it's two parts. One is recognition, getting the, getting the information out there that a baby with, presenting with pneumonia might have cystic fibrosis and not just pneumonia. So those are the kinds of healthcare messages that need to be out there because they present to, to midwives, to, to healthcare practitioners, primary care practitioners. But then the easy part is something that we actually published in The Lancet a couple of years back, and that is we costed what it is that, that, that is necessary, and that is a simple set of tablets and a high-fat diet. And I, I often joke with my uh, patients, you know, that, that a high-fat diet, which is always uh, suggested to be terribly bad for you if you don't have cystic fibrosis, plus a few pills that cost hundreds of pounds only. Which pills are they? Uh, these are replacements for your, for your uh, ability to digest, these pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy. It's acid-resistant pills that you take that allow you to digest your food. So the uh, situation then is your diarrhea stops. And once the diarrhea stops, then you can accumulate food because it's not generally appreciated that you grow three lung units every second as a child. So you can imagine that a child is born with, let's say, uh, one to three million lung units. Now you, Richard, have got 300 million lung units. And assuming you don't smoke and that sort of stuff, they're going to last you for many, many years. But of course, how do you go from one million to 300 million? You have to grow them, and they're made of fat and you have to have the fat in the diet to make them up. If you get the nutrition in early, you get the medicine in early, you make a huge, significant impact in this disease. Dr. Mehta, thank you. A lot of fascinating detail there, and clearly you've, you've got a, a clear pattern emerging of comparison between the EU countries and the non-EU countries. What are your conclusions? How are you interpreting these findings, both at the European level and, obviously, more broadly, at the international level? Well, I've spoken to individuals within the European Health Commission, and the commissioner has just changed, but the previous commissioner, Andrula Vassiliou, 
made the comment that irrespective of which member state you are in, you are entitled to the same level of health care. Now, I know this is an ambitious target and bears no relation to reality today, but the target has been set by the Commission. So it has relevance to the Commission. So that's at the international level. The, the re disease registry level is of equal importance, that for the first time, the type of data that we are collecting and now taken on by the European CF Society is held in a manner which is very similar to the American data, to the Australian data, and so now we have the prospect of actually analyzing outcomes using the same base. And when you add that idea to the system in Europe that's now about to be set up for the European Rare Disease Initiative, there's a, a brand new committee charged with delivering, irrespective of geography and irrespective of type of rare disease, centers of expertise to be developed in different member states where individuals can either travel to those states, if that's appropriate, or have expertise available to local health care doctors. And cystic fibrosis is going to be used as the prime example, I am told, within the European Commission to show the other diseases how best to proceed. Well, all the very best with that. It's a fascinating subject, a rare disease, but a very interesting disease. Dr. Anil Mehta on the line from Dundee, many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet. Thank you very much for being allowed to present this data. Well, that concludes this week's podcast. Many thanks for listening. See you next week.